Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning and today I'm joined by Patrick Corrigan, the Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology. In this episode, we'll be discussing the stigma that surrounds mental health, why it exists, the impact stigma has, and what can be done to normalize mental health and the issues we can all face in the same way that we are susceptible to physical injury. Pat has an illustrious career as an educator, researcher, and the author of the topics of stigma and discrimination experienced by people with health conditions and disabilities. He has written more than 400 peer-reviewed articles, is the editor emeritus of the American Journal of Psychiatric Rehabilitation, and the editor of a new journal published by the American Psychological Association called Stigma and Health. Pat has also authored or edited 15 books, the latest being The Stigma of Disease and Disability. Welcome to the Being Human podcast. Pat, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I've read your, um, your work since I was a grad student. I never thought that one day I'll be talking to you about your work. I think that, you you know, you're... The, the research that you put out has been really instrumental in how I think the, the field perceives mental health stigma. So how did you first get interested in this topic? Well, I'm a clinical psychologist by trade, and I spent the first 10 years of my career setting up psychiatric rehabilitation programs to help people with serious mental illness meet their major life goals, which by the way are the same as all your listeners' major life goals. Find a job, get a career, make a living, find a place to live, find a significant other, settle down, have 2.3 children, live in the suburb and buy two cars. We were pretty successful, but what we found out is that even though um, an individual person was ready to go back to work. The employer thought they couldn't do it or they would be dangerous or a landlord wouldn't want to rent to them or um, a healthcare provider would offer a substandard of care. And so we realized the problem that a person with serious mental illness is not just their mental illness, their disabilities and symptoms, but is equally the stigma, the prejudice and discrimination the community have against them. And so just as we realize that we need to learn ways, study ways that help people with disabilities better meet their life goals, so we need to study ways that help the community be much more accepting of individuals. I think in your work, you talked about the various types of mental health stigma. Um, could you elaborate on that? We look at stigma in different ways. On one hand, we look at the way a social psychologist does. So a psycholo social psychologist, whether they're talking about the stigma of ethnic groups or women or sexual orientation, they look at stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination. 
Um, so let me tell you about a group I know a little bit about in terms of uh, stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination is Irish Americans. So in the United States, a belief about Irish Americans that we're all drunks and we neglect our families. Stereotypes are unavoidable. You grow up in a culture, you learn them. Prejudice is a green with the stereotype. Yep, they're all drunks. And discrimination is a behavior. Therefore, I'm not going to hire them or rent them or um, socialize with them. So what are the prejudice? What is the stereotypes, prejudice, discrimination of mental illness? Perhaps the biggest stereotype. And remember, by definition, stereotypes are not true. The biggest definition is that people with mental illness are all dangerous. Because if you believe they're dangerous, you don't want to hire them or rent to them because they go off on you and hurt you. Um, but other stereotypes are ones like they're incompetent, they're not able to get a job or make it through school. They chose to be this way. Prejudice is agreeing with it. And it's emotional reaction. I'm afraid of them. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. And the discrimination is not hiring them or renting to them or providing health care. You can understand the impact stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination in terms of different types, as you suggested. Um, the first type is what we generally think of in terms of stigma, which is public stigma, which is what we, the population, do to people when we agree with the stereotypes and we discriminate against them. I agree people with mental illness are dangerous, and therefore I don't want them in my school with my kids, or therefore I don't want to work next to them. Self-stigma is what happens when you internalize the stigma. You are a person with mental illness living in a culture that has disrespected them all this time. And it can lead to feelings of shame and um, lack of efficacy. I can't be successful in life, causing the why try effect. Why should I try to get a job? Something like me is not worth it. Or why should I try to live on my own? Something like me is not capable of it. And then we talk about a third type of stigma. Um, what we call label avoidance. So the great man of stigma was a person named Irving Goffman, who in the 60s distinguished stigma into what were obvious stigma and hidden stigma. So obvious stigma is a stigma of ethnicity. Um, I can tell somebody's a skin color different than me, and if I'm racist, I can discriminate against them. Or it's gender. I can tell somebody was a body type different than me, and if I'm sexist, I can discriminate against them. Or age, I can tell who has gray hair. And if I'm ageist, I can discriminate against them. I cannot tell who has a mental illness, despite what your listeners might think. If you're in a room of 100 people, statistically, about 20% of those folks have a serious mental illness, but you can't tell who they are. The way you get the stigma of mental illness is you get the label. Um, you get seen. There, there's Harry coming out of the psych unit. He must be nuts. Or there's Mary coming out of the counselor's program in high school. She must be crazy. And people don't like the label because a label, as I said, leads to discrimination. And so they want to avoid it. And so they don't go into care, even though we know there are services that help people with mental illness. I'm not going to go see the psychiatrist or the counselor or the psychologist because people are going to think I'm crazy and discriminate against me. Those are the different kinds of stigma. You mentioned that um, stereotypes aren't true, but didn't they come from somewhere? I mean, yeah, that's a stereotype that people with mental illnesses are dangerous, and then someone's going to point to research showing, yes, they are more likely to be violent than the, uh, the normal population. That's a tremendous slippery slope. Um, some social psychologists once talked about kernel of truth. 
that there is a kernel of truth that describes certain ethnic groups. For example, in America right now, we are having a sacrilegious, shameful, horrible racism against Asians. And you could argue that's based on a kernel of truth that, in fact, Asians are hyper busy, self-concerned, really math oriented. And that is really based on a perpetuation of the stigma. Let me give you another one, a kernel of truth, all Irish Americans. You can argue as a kernel of truth that Irish drink more than other people and therefore are more likely to be alcoholics. And that's based on the stigma itself. And that's not based in truth. So let's look at the stereotype of dangerousness, um, which you're right. Um, that is the big stereotype we all have. Um, in fact, colleagues at Columbia University, Bruce Link and Joe Phelan did a study that show in the last 50 years, the stigma of dangerousness is getting worse. What does the actual data show? Um, the data shows a couple things. One is that, in fact, the public grossly overestimates the level of dangerousness in people with mental illness. But two, even more interestingly, data shows if I had 100 people in a room in front of me and I wanted to know what the best predictor of who's going to be dangerous there, and I can know everything about them. The single best predictor is whether they're male. The second best predictor is whether they're young. And the third best predictor is whether they're of color. If we were to set up hospitals for young male people of color as a way to try to protect the public, um, which is what jail is in America, by the way, if we were to do that, we'd be accused of great racism. So why is it, you're right, why is it that everybody thinks mental illness is so well connected with dangerousness? Well, one reason is because when the world has those god-awful shootings, or again, when America has those god-awful shootings, somebody goes into school and kills a bunch of children, or goes in the theater and gets a bunch of patrons or shoots congressmen, people get on the newspapers and in the radio and say that's because they're mentally ill and they're dangerous they're out of control in fact i have a colleague named tony jorn who did a study in australia that showed after the connecticut elementary school shootings the level of stigma about people in australia with mental illness went up so it's a slippery slope right so sometimes it has you know the one that you talked about colorado but in australia it has nothing to do with almost the immediate setting the negative stereotype can travel, even if it doesn't, if it's not applicable. TV, it's radio. I mean, after many of these shootings in the United States, I end up at our national public radio trying to address the question, why does the public think people with mental illness are dangerous? And I think there's a fundamental need to address that question. Because when you have these god-awful shootings, and for some reason, when you're not able to put gun control on the table, you want to know why these things happen. And I think these things happen because there are bad people in the world, not because there are mentally ill people in the world. So, yeah, I think then looking really beyond maybe the most, uh, the explanation that often gets tacked on to that, right? People want, people are trying to explain what's going on and they find something that sets you know, um, these individuals apart and they pick mental illness, but it could be other factors that are often then being overlooked. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that differentiation you mentioned, the public stigma 
and um, self-stigma. So as a clinical psychologist, I, I thought, well, I never endorse public stigma. You know, I'll never, you know, be um, prejudiced against my clients. But then when I was depressed, I realized uh, that uh, I endorse very stigmatizing attitudes about myself. So how is it that I could say, no, no, you know, people with depression are not lazy. I'll never endorse that about someone else, but then endorse it about myself. The tremendous trend in the literature, which, by the way, thank God, is getting better, which has shown that of all the stigmatizing professions, uh, electricians and plumbers and secretaries and lawyers and doctors, the most stigmatizing profession against people with mental illness or psychiatrists. And the second most stigmatizing, by the way, are clinical psychologists like you and me. Why is that so? Especially when we went into this profession to help people, not to discriminate against them. Probably one of the worst reasons, especially try to understand our brothers and sisters in psychiatry, is because they tend to see people when they're really sick, um, when they're really out of control, psychotic and perhaps flailing around a little bit, which is even somebody with schizophrenia, which is the most serious mental illness, is a small amount of the time. It's sort of like assuming somebody with diabetes, the average person with diabetes is in a diabetic coma all the time, which they're not. And what a lot of people with mental illness, a lot of healthcare providers see is they don't see when they're in recovery, when they get better, when they go off in their life. And it's at that point, when um, the stigma would go away. In addition, mental health profession is fundamentally flawed with its idea of diagnosis and the DSM because diagnosis assumes you have schizophrenia, you're categorically different than I am. And it's not the case. In fact, symptoms like hearing voices, um, having strange beliefs is on a continuum that everybody has some extent can hear voices. They're called hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. Hypnagogic occurs as you're falling asleep. Hypnopompic occurs as you're waking up. They're also out of the corner of the eye experience. You see somebody off in the corner of the eye. Hmm, is that my dead Aunt Lillian? So, in fact, people with even the most serious mental illnesses are not broken and fundamentally different than we are. In fact, if you could really do a deep dive, they share much, much, much more than us. And your example of depression is, depression is such a most interesting condition because I bet everybody listening here has had some form of depression, not clinical depression, not necessarily needing to go off and see a psychologist, but some sort of sadness for doing poorly in school or being snubbed by friends or having the loss of a loved one. And that kind of thing is just in the normal realm of being. As we understand, this is a normal realm of being. We're not going to look at the depressive as somehow broken and different than us. If, I mean, and I agree with you that obviously mental health is on a continuum and, and, Depression is so common, right? So if it's so common, why do you think so many people struggle to accept the possibility that they could be depressed? So why does the stigma remain if it is so common? Mm -hmm. um, one reason is because people won't say it's common, um, that the stigma of mental illness is hidden, that when you have a mental illness, 
Um, it's getting better in culture, but when you get a mental illness, you don't tell people, you hide it, you keep it away. And so again, my hunch is your listener is going to find it odd to believe that epidemiologic research shows that in a lifetime, about one out of five, one out of four people will have depression. They just won't believe it because they don't see it that way. And that's because it's hidden. You've mentioned Jorman, uh, Australia, and, and he's done a lot of great work on mental health literacy. And there is that, that uh, I think a couple of studies now that have shown that even though people are becoming more aware, so even if people do accept, okay, one in four um, individuals in their lifetime will have depression, stigma is not reducing. So why is that? You know, we're learning more, we're becoming more aware, but the, the stigmatizing attitudes remain. Bravo. You've learned a lot from the material you've read. I distinguish the value of mental health literacy from stigma change. For example, you don't decrease racism by going into a public school and teach about all the wonderful things of African heritage. People who are racist are just going to ignore that thing. There is this disconnect between the impact of education and other ways of changing stigma. What we tend to think as an educated society is the best way to change stigma is go tell everybody it's a brain disorder or go tell everybody they didn't want to have that kind of thing. In fact, research pretty consistently shows that does not help and it often makes things worse. Let's take brain disorder, for example. If you think, if you show people the genetic studies or MRIs of somebody who's hallucinating or the like, you would think that we're less likely to blame them for their mental illness, which is true. We are less likely to blame them, but we're also more likely to think they won't get better, that it's hardwired in. So if education is not the way to go, what is the way to go? The best way to go to change stigma is contact, is interactions between people with lived experience and the rest of the population. The way we've made slow steps in much of the Western world about the racism towards black people is the degree to which black people and white people interact as peers, and they can check for themselves the relative benefits of each other's culture and what they can gain from each other. Well, and and as you rightly pointed out, I'm, I'm a great student, so I've also learned <laughs> that... It's not just um, contact with anyone. Could you speak a little bit about, you know, what's what type of contact is useful? You, you mentioned in, in your work about counter-stereotypical or like moderately counter-stereotypical versus wow. stereotypical. What's the difference there? So I'm a little hesitant to say this because your, your listener might hear this as an endorsement of the dangers in a stereotype. But you want to have contact with people who challenge the stereotype. So having contact with somebody who on the street is having a psychotic moment and is yelling or is preaching to God does not challenge the stereotype. It makes it worse. So you want to have contact with people in recovery, people who have beaten the stereotype. And despite the fact their mental illness might recur, they're able to achieve the same goals as you and I, and that's recovery. Now, by the way, your listeners might think, well, people with schizophrenia never recover, and that's just the stereotype. That in reality, people with serious mental illness like schizophrenia can recover. That doesn't mean they get symptom-free, 
But that means despite their symptoms, they can go to school if they want. They can get a job. They can find a nice place to live. They can find a life partner and develop a family. You know, one way to look at recovery is the same thing of looking at people in a wheelchair. People in a wheelchair are probably never going to get out of the wheelchair, but they still recovered. They can pursue whatever their life goals are despite that wheelchair. In fact, it's the community's job to provide accommodations so the people in the wheelchair can get to work because there's ramps and elevators and use the restroom or people with vision problems can go on an elevator and have braille and push the right buttons and the like. So people with serious mental illness who get the accommodations they deserve can do well. So you are someone who has been really quite public with your own story. How do you figure what's the best way to tell your story in a way that challenges the stereotype rather than, than feed in and, and reinforce um, people's be- negative beliefs about mental illness? Well, let's put that in perspective a minute. Um, if contact is the way to change stigma, and as I said before, the stigma of mental illness is largely hidden, then some people need to choose to come out and disclose their story. And if you want a metaphor for that, we realize that the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender population is about 10% of the population. And yet in days past, they had to keep that a secret, be a closet or risk being harmed. I mean, the United States about 50 years ago, brave men and women, gay, lesbians and the like came out and told their story and brought down at least to some degree the issues of homophobia and prejudice and harm against the LGBTQ population. So you need to do the same thing with mental illness. You know, coming out is not just an issue of publicly trying to bring down the stereotypes. It's also a good issue for you because being in the closet with your mental illness is horrible for your mental health. Keeping anything a secret is bad, leading to anxiety and depression. So it was a journey for me. It's a journey for everyone. Uh, My mental illness sort of noticeably started in college. Um, It grossly derailed my career, what should have been about an eight-year career to becoming Dr. Pat, took about 15. Um, Since then, it can derail me in my profession. My mental illness tends to be all worked up with my job. And I was going around beginning to understand contact was a secret and telling people to come out and realize, hey, that's me. I should come out. And so I did. And my story evolves. My story continues to evolve depending where I am, who I'm talking to. Um, I think I do it as much for me because it's part of being authentic. If I want to talk about that life issue, obviously a big issue, um, I shouldn't hide it in a closet if I don't want to. Um, And so how do people decide to come out and share their story as they like? To each their own, you know, I I guess it's like almost uh, if that person is ready, is that how they decide? You know, if somebody says, well, I want to, but what if there's going to be a backlash? Should they do it for the, I don't know, the greater good of trying to tackle stigma against mental illness? That's a tremendously difficult question. 
Um, about 10 years ago, we developed a program now called Honest, Open, Proud to erase the stigma of mental illness. In fact, um, your listeners can go to www.hopprogram.org and download the materials I'm going to share with you for free. Um, this is a program led by people who are out with their mental illness for people who are in with their mental illness in the closet to help them decide whether, when, and how to come out. It's a strategic decision. Um, I would never tell any of your listeners today they should go to work tomorrow and tell them about their mental health challenges. It's a very dynamic decision. Um, Honest Open Proud has three lessons to it. The first lesson is to consider the pros and cons of coming out, which vary, by the way, whether you're talking about coming out at work versus your faith-based community versus your extended family. The second lesson is to um, test people to come out. So, Sook, you and I work at the same program. You seem to be a nice person. I could take you to McDonald's. Um, I could say, hey, did you ever see Silver Linings Playbook? What did you think? You said, I'm sick and tired of movies like that, showing mentally ill people like everybody else. You're probably not a good person to come out to. Um, I can test people. I do not think listeners should come out to whoever they want to. They should come out to whatever serves their needs at the moment. And the third lesson is your story. What are you going to say? Um, this is done in a group of peers who are wrestling with the same issues and two facilitators who might be one small step ahead of you. Um, we've done five peer-reviewed um, tests of this that are now in the research literature. What we tend to find is about one third of people will come out in the month or two after the program. However, there's significant change, improvement in self-esteem, decrease in stigma stress, um, decrease in um, depression, improvement in help, because people will say, I never knew I had that option before. Um, I just thought I was supposed to keep it a secret. I thought I was supposed to be ashamed of myself. And maybe you will come out later. Again, I was a psychologist for probably 10 years. I'm a psychology professor before I told anybody about my mental health problems. And probably the first time I came out, I said, oh, I've got a little bit of a mental health problem. Um, and it just evolves over time to include stories of hospitalization and taking meds, which I did this morning, and um, dealing with the challenges it's had for my wife and children. Um, it's, it's a process. Yeah, I remember the first time I, I went public with, uh, you know, with my history of depression and even my family members were very concerned about the impact that it would have um, on me and on my career. And, and I, I felt that in that I was fortunate or to know about uh, maybe to be aware and, and, and to be informed. And so the way I protected myself was like, you know, I'm going to correct anyone <laughs> with uh, uh, who tells me I'm lazy and tell them and like to correct their negative beliefs about me if they attributed, you know, something about depression. But even until today, I think it still creates a feeling of vulnerability, you know, um, to tell a story that I've, I've told so many times because you you never know. And, and the fact, yeah, you're right. You know, like you don't want to just say it to anyone. Um, and then you have to say it when it suits your purpose. And some people 
may not react well. In fact, I think um, that's highly possible, especially in Malaysia, where, where mental health is very stigmatized. At some point, you get to a place where you go public with it and you can't take it back. Um, I um, wrote a book called Coming Out Proud to Erase the Stigma of Mental Illness, which is 40 stories of people with mental illness around the, around the world. Um, the first story is mine. It's hard to back out after that. I think there's lots of reasons I do it, um, including advocacy and trying to tear down stigma. For me, I think the biggest issue is it's just part of who I am. Uh, I, mean, I identify myself as a psychologist and a professor because I spend a lot of time in my life getting there and doing that. And I identify myself as a father and a husband because those are very important things to me. But this is just part of my life experience. And if I want to say it, I do. And I don't have to worry about people looking over my shoulders. The interesting thing is where I'm hesitant to come out, um, I'm privileged to speak a lot around the world to all sorts of groups. Where I'm hesitant to come out is a traditional hard science psychiatry program where they have medical models of mental illness. And what I'm most concerned about that is them dismissing my research is, oh, he's just a mental patient. He's just saying this because he wants to. He's not really a careful scientist. Um, and that's why I probably should, and I do come out in those kind of places. Where I'm overjoyed to come out is there are places in the world, programs of recovery. Recovery is really endorsed in much of the world now with people with like-minded agendas who come out and first say, God, I never knew you had this. And second is, so do I, and me too. And let's meet over a cup of coffee and talk about our experiences. And by the way, our experiences are not limited to failure. It's not just having a mental illness and failing. It's incorporating that to who I am and how I go forward and how it colors my life and makes me more of a whole person. And so I'm glad I can share that with people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've I've gone through therapy to to help me understand that experience and 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 how it's. I don't look back at my experience with depression and am overjoyed by it because it was a really tough time and had you know years of consequences. But it's become part of my story, and I think, and in some ways, continues to be because there's always that possibility of relapse right so like you talk about the recovery model it's never that you know for depression once once you've had um one episode the chances of relapse increase once you have a second episode then it goes up again and so for me it's always making sure that i'm keeping healthy and doing what's good for me to keep my mental health up i just want to very briefly touch on some cool research that you are doing that I'm doing with you actually, but also, you know, you differentiated more recently between mental health stigma and uh, the stigma of suicide. Can you say a couple of things about that? Well, I do this with a colleague at Illinois Institute of Technology, Lindsay Sheehan. Um, about eight years ago, we began to realize that the community of people who have experienced suicide is not the same as the community of people who experience mental illness. Um, that was hard for me because I was, I was mental illness. Um, that that's, that's a big caution in um, people with depression, anxiety, um, schizophrenia. 
And the reality is people who've attempted suicide um, have a much different experience by the world. First off, they do not necessarily meet criteria for mental illness. Um, second off, it's, it's an independent decision based on their bleak view of the world at the time. And the other thing about suicide is in the mental health profession is the atomic bomb of mental health. Um, I tell my students that when suicide comes up on the table, it becomes a huge priority and we need to make decisions about how to keep the person safe. And the safety concern, which is legitimate, makes us stop listening to the person. And so Lindsay Sheehan and I, mostly Lindsay Sheehan, took Honest Open Proud and adapted it for people um, who've attempted suicide. And so Lindsay is now working with you to adapt it for Malaysians. Um, let me tell you one thing about that process. Um, I am a European American. I come from Europe. Um, I travel a lot in Asia. And when I realize I'm extremely humble about what it means to be in Asia and do things with Asia. So we currently have several projects going on in China. If we're gonna develop Honest, Open, Proud for Chinese, we need to have the Chinese do it. They're not our focus group. They are our research partners. They drive it. In fact, I know it's going well in a different country when they come up with something I either think is a bad idea or I think, I where'd that come from? And so I know Lindsay's going to partner with you, Sook, to develop Honest, Open, Proud or some version of it for Malaysians. Um, one of the first questions we have amongst ourselves is disclosure is a hot issue in the United States um, with its threats. Um, we don't have a clue what it means in Malaysia, and we're privileged to partner with you and other Malaysians to understand what this is and how we develop HOP for it. Yeah, I'm really excited about the project. Um, okay, so the last you know, I really learned a lot from this conversation. And the last bit is talking about um, stereotypes and how they're so widely prevalent in society. We know from some uh, social psych research that there are these implicit attitudes. So whether or not you endorse them explicitly and say, you know, um, people with mental illness are dangerous or people with depression are lazy, to some degree you because you are aware of this ideas in society, you in, have internalized them. Can we say that everyone in society endorses to some degree negative stereotypes uh, about people with mental illness? Well, let's talk about the research first and let's ask you a tough question. In the social psychologists, they talk about implicit and effortful processing or automatic and effortful processing. So when you get into a car and drive from your home to work, which is five miles, you do the whole thing without thinking about it. It's automatic. It's just like that. When you dance on the floor to rock music, it's automatic. You just think about it. Effortful is, tends to be new things. Um, when you learn, for example, that people with mental illness are not bad, that's a new idea. The problem is behind that is there's this automatic wow, mentally ill people are dangerous, just still there, implicit. And so the question is, can you change stigma and not change the implicit attitude? Um, that might want to be another podcast you and I have. The simple answer would probably be yes. 
but the tough question that you're implying is therefore are we all a bit stigmatizing and i think the answer to that is yes i think there's some benefit to stereotypes let me tell you a good benefit of stereotype if i'm in a dangerous place and I see somebody coming at me with a dark clothes and a hat on, a little silver badge, I think, oh, that's a police officer. Um, that's a stereotype. And I can reach out to her and have her help me out. Or if I'm in a place because I'm sick and all these people are running around in white coats, I'm thinking, wow, I can ask them for help and they can help me out. So it's, it's an implicit rapid response to people that can be useful over time. And what we should be concerned about is those stereotypes about a group of people that lead to disrespectful, discriminating attitudes. And that's what your podcast is trying to do, is make us sensitive to try to decrease the attitudes. And more importantly, to try to replace discrimination, I'm not going to hire you, with affirming attitudes like um, you are a person in recovery worthy of hope and I'm going to hire you and provide accommodations so you can be successful. On that note, um, I just want to ask you, maybe I don't know whether this is a hard question, but you've mentioned accommodations several times. So if somebody listening to this podcast goes, you know, Dr. Pat, I'm convinced and um, I want to be supportive of my employee with a mental illness, but it's really difficult. And that person never comes to work. Should I, what kind of, what's reasonable in that case? You know, how can I be supportive, but still, you know, run a business? What would you say to that? Absolutely. Uh, I'm not aware of what the laws are in Malaysia, in the United States, and much of the world. There are these disability acts which require us to be reasonably accommodating to people with disabilities. And so um, in the rest of the world, reasonable accommodations for people with physical disabilities, it's by law over 30 years that people in wheelchairs need to have ramps and elevators and restrooms to let them get around in their wheelchair by law. And so what do we do with that mentally ill person who's lazy and the like? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that employers who have many employees have employees have all sorts of problems. And we don't want to fire them because first off, it's not a good business model, hiring people, training them, and then firing them. And secondly, we are nice human beings. We don't want to throw people out. And so we want to look at what kind of accommodations there are. In the rehab world, there's many accommodations, but I would think the most innovative one are job coaches. So there are job coaches you can hire in parts of the world where the job coach comes in every day into your big Walmart store of 100 employees and sits down with Jenny and says, how are you today, Jenny? What do you need? What do you want to do? Are you stressed? Should we talk to your supervisor? The supervisor knows the supervisor wants me there because the supervisor doesn't want Jenny to do bad. It doesn't do good for them. And we put our heads together and we think about how Jenny's going to get through the day. That doesn't seem right, does it? That seems like, why should we have to do that for Jenny? But then why should the person have to spend $100,000 to retrofit their business so that people with wheelchairs can get around? Because that is the right ethical accommodating thing to do. And it's good for business because you don't want to fire people. You don't want to have cranky people there. You don't want to be um, 
disciplining people all the time. And so accommodations can be a big step. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the um, the cost of turnover and the cost of replacing an employee is so much higher. Um, and like when people see that you care for your employees and are willing to work with them um, to help them succeed at work, it has this overall motivational effect in the workplace anyway. And so that's a huge ask. That's not an easy process. I wouldn't think employers can be able to go to work today and, and wash their hands and say they're all set. What they want to do is get a textbook called Principles and Practices of Psychiatric Rehabilitation, um, which is a textbook I wrote, which tries to teach the community how to provide accommodations and help the person with mental illness stay on the job. Again, good for the person with mental illness, good for business. That said, let's be clear, there are times when that fails. But then there are times when the employer is working with somebody else who doesn't have a mental illness that fails and you have to cut your relationships and go on. And that's part of life. Yeah, well, that's also very realistic, right? It's doing the best you can working with people and it doesn't always work out and that's okay. On that note, thank you, Pat, for this really um, great conversation. Thank you for having me. So thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis, and so be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms, one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care. <laughs>